the R&B Solutionist Thinking Podcast Series for the creative minds with a passion for possibility. Hosted by Bruce Whitfield. Today's guest is Benji Kutsia, founder and chief executive of Empty Trips. Now, if you've ever been on the road and you've seen a long convoy of empty trucks coming toward you and ever thought to yourself, that looks like an awful waste of money. These trucks have come from one place, taken a product from point A to point B, but they came back from B to A empty. There's an opportunity and you think to yourself, there's got to be a business in there somewhere. Well, sorry, you've been beaten to the business because that's exactly the thought process that Benji Kutsia had one day. On the road. It's a $7 trillion industry, and it's been said not only in South Africa, globally, it's a 30 to 40% issue on capacity mismatch. It's a problem that we need to fix. The fact that we have more catastrophic environmental incidents over the last five years than we've ever seen before, we need to take drastic change. And not all of us are going to recycle, and not all of us are going to make drastic changes. But if we simply just fix the wastage in this one industry, we could actually just reduce carbon emissions by nearly 5%. This is one industry. I'm Bruce Whitfield, and you're listening to RMB Solutionist Thinking. Which road was it? It was actually the N3 from Durban to Johannesburg, sitting alongside of my partner at the time. And I said, well, this is clearly so inefficient. And he said, well, if you can figure out a way to match cargo to those trucks, it'll be the holy grail of logistics. And I love a challenge. So logistics always has been you're a company A and you run your trucks and you do a delivery for your clients. And if you do this properly, if you're the furniture removal companies, I think they're quite good at it in terms of matching their trips. But they are matching trips for their clients. They are sourcing their clients. You looked at it slightly differently and said, I can match this truck with a multiplicity of clients. You're not just restricting yourself to the world of Stutterfords or whomever. No, I think it's a, it's a more of a marketplace logic or thinking that I took. And I said, well, if all of the companies continue to work in a vacuum, we're not going to reduce this inefficiency. But if you look at the shared economy, which is the Airbnbs, the Ubers, it's typically just marketplaces, better matching capacity to requirement. And it's kind of the logic that I took. So who was the first person you proposed this to and what was their reaction to it? Funnily enough, it was my parents, and I said I was going to quit my great corporate career and give it a go instead of going to do a master's or in another MBA. And um, my dad said, well, it's a great idea, but how are you going to do it? When I started going into the technology side of it, I lost him. <laughs> I lost him immediately. Um, and then the second person I actually proposed it to was my boss at the time, and him being in private equity and venture capital and niche consulting, he said, you know what, you've clearly got a hunger for entrepreneurship. I hope that you survive or that you succeed because 99% of startups fail. It's a great idea, but now go turn that idea into something that's actually worthwhile listening to other than just the idea. So that's kind of where I got the go-ahead from. Your background is mathematical. You've worked as an investment banker. You've worked as a management consultant. Are any of those disciplines useful? Management consulting, definitely. Even investment banking, I you've can't You've learned be. to bluff your way with the best, <laughs> 
I can't, I can't badmouth the investment bankers. I was just a bit bored. So there's only so many analytical models that you can build and investment memos that you can write that gets turned down or, you know, credit committee doesn't approve because I'm a risk taker. Unfortunately, so it wasn't a good fit for me to be an analyst <laughs> at a bank. Um, I think we were all safer without me being an analyst there. But management consulting, definitely. I think BCG is probably the hardest things I've ever done in my life other than become an entrepreneur because they push you to a whole different level. So you grow when you're uncomfortable. And BCG consistently made me uncomfortable, whether it be hours of work, new types of modeling or analysis that I had to learn that I had no idea about how to do. Um, You always just nod to the client and you say, yes, we'll figure it out, even though you're not a specialist. So I think BCG taught me a few things. It taught me how to structure a company, how to restructure a company, how to do a strategy, how to pivot from a strategy, how to cut costs, how to be innovative, how to manifest a culture of uh, productivity and creativity, which is very, really important when you're a startup. And how also to deal with very different personalities in the room, be it from a narcissistic, egotistical CEO, which is often the case in S&P 500. That's why they're successful. It's a trait to a very diplomatic chairman of a board to influencing a whole bunch of board members to potentially select what you've proposed so that they actually can execute it, be it an acquisition of a company, be a divestment of a company, entering a new market, launching a new product, how to deal with competition. I mean, we dealt with a very big operator or manufacturer, car manufacturer, and how are they going to respond to Uber? I mean, that really changed my thinking. So from that perspective, management consulting gave me this toolbox that made me think open and bigger. And I always felt that I wasn't smart enough to be there, which always made me want to overachieve and prove that I am smart enough to be there. So you propose this to your parents who go, well, if you think that's the right thing to do, dear, which is usually, are you completely crazy? (laughs) That's, That's code for are you completely crazy? You go to your boss, you say, I'm resigning to do this. Do you develop software do you develop the tech or do you take your idea to market first because for so many people going towards startup they've got the great idea and are terrified to let go of that idea for the fear that somebody else a bit like alexander graham bell and the guy whose name i forget who actually did invent the telephone were going neck and neck um in order to get there first and bell gets the credit you don't want to be overtaken yeah um i think I mean, that's an anxiety that everyone has. And even if once you've launched a company from an idea, every morning I wake, I used to wake up with a lot of anxiety of who's copying me, who's got more capital to throw at this, you know, who's going to outrun me? When is Uber Freight coming to South Africa, you know? And eventually I just had to let that go. But the biggest advice I can give to anyone that wants to launch any type of business, from tech to manufacturing to a new, to a new nail varnish, it's just an idea until you actually execute And to raise capital in South Africa is really tough. And our economic environment now even tougher. So if you don't have the gift of the gab, you haven't actually gotten a prototype to at least show them. We all have ideas. I wake up with 100 ideas in the middle of the night. But I haven't executed on them because tomorrow morning I would have forgotten about them. You know, but now I've gotten someone's funding to go and do it. So first go do it. Try it. Risk your own money. It also makes you more, how can I say, particular about what you should develop or not because it's your cost and then take it to an investor. And even then, not everything needs investment. Not everything needs capital to get ahead. You did that. You took two million rand of savings, which you'd built up in your professional career, and you threw it at the problem. And the problem that you were looking to solve was empty trucks. Yeah, empty trucks and trains. And um, 
I did that. I think when you start something, you need to feel passionate about it. And why I felt passionate about it is because I saw all of the secondary negative impacts that empty trucks and trains were creating to our economy, to our the damage to our roads, the social impact from the promiscuous behavior from the truck drivers, HIV, all these things. So it had this triple impact play. And being a millennial, I was like, well, I can make profit. Improve the environment by reducing the carbon emissions if I could find better matches and hopefully have a social impact by creating sustainable jobs and less negative impact by transport, which we need for economic growth. We always will need this industry. So I felt very passionate about the industry itself. I did underestimate how hard it was going to be. I did underestimate that I should probably have tested my hypothesis, not with my dad and with my employer at the time, but with more people in the industry. I should have been more cognizant of the pushback I was going to get from players because they feel cannibalism is going to happen. Now, take me through this. I mean, <laughs> there, there are people in the industry who must feel a bit stupid that they haven't thought of this themselves. You're a woman going into a man's industry, into a man's world traditionally, um, and they're going to look at you and go, seriously, you can deliver <laughs> a solution for me. Do you not know who I am? No, oh, we got that often. I'm sure. The first thing was that I didn't come from the industry, right? So I was a management consultant, so I'm good with math and I can analyze and I can create great slides and I can present them well. And then you also sit in front of them and they have this regret because they had this idea, but they didn't do it. So you have this like animosity and regret play going on in the boardroom. And then it's just still this young millennial that's telling them how to run their business potentially when I'm actually just asking to say, let's try it. Let's try it. It's going to be in your benefit. It'll be in my benefit. It'll be in your customer's benefit. Literally is a triple win here. But then you get this resistance because it's also change. And that's why I think a lot of companies are going to become irrelevant very soon because they have this inertia towards change. And all these innovators are coming, but they want to bring them along, but it doesn't happen. Because you're threatening to disrupt the way I've done things for decades. I have trucks that come from the copper fields of Zambia and they bring their product to smelters in South Africa, for argument's sake, or they take it to ports in South ports. Africa. Yeah. And the trucks then immediately hightail it back to the copper fields because there's another load to bring back to the port. You saw this and you went, hold on a second, but there's a port full of stuff here that could either you know, be dropped off halfway or could be taken all the way back to those same copper fields. Exactly. And I think our goal was to democratize the access to the data to know where the capacity is and where the cargo is. And being a portal and not actually owning the truck or the train or the cargo, we were completely impartial as to what's the best match. It's always about optimizing the space usage. And I think that played a very big influence into the industry to actually start to trust us. Who was it, the first? Actually, surprising, one of the first companies that signed up that never used the portal and still, I'm still maneuvering around them, is Imperial. So clearly they felt very threatened. They were like, what's this little startup that's come up here? And who's this little founder? And all this hype that's been created because... Logically, you would think that the Barlows of the world and the Imperials of the world mm. are South Africa's premier logistics companies. They are the guys who would have spearheaded this in their own interests. So I know Imperial actually has an internal platform that could be seen as a competitor, but they mothballed it. So I think they spent a bit of money on it and it might have been someone's pet project, but the industry wasn't ready yet. It wasn't because Imperial didn't make the right moves. They actually probably did and they are visionaries, but 
the timing wasn't right. And I'm not saying our timing was right. I mean, it's been a good two and a half years of maneuvering and massaging. And we still, we slowly ticking up and it's getting there. And it's not like boom. Airbnb wasn't a boom. Uber wasn't a boom. It's systematic. The market needs to be ready. The industry needs to be ready. But they did take notice. And when I said, well, work with us, then they were like, no, no, no. We have to protect our own, which is which is sad to think because instead of just collaborating within the ecosystem, they wanted to protect their own turf. That's most terrifying words for traditional businesses. Collaborate within the Ooh. ecosystem. You've just used two foreign words. Exactly. Um, and in the are the only ones that a lot of companies understand. So where have you had success? Where have you had cargo that sort of because not all trucks can be used some trucks of the format is wrong you can't use a fuel bowser to transport milk for example (laughs) um there'd be a contamination so how do you figure out what can and can't work so within the algorithm actually three factors that we consider so one is location based to say where is it coming from and where is it going to both the truck and the cargo with a hundred kilometer radius around it to find a possible directional match once it's a directional match, then we go into the spatial match, i.e. Um, the density and the volume of the cargo and the density and, well, the volume and the carrying capacity of the vehicle or the train doesn't really matter. So once you have those two possible matches within ranges, then we say, okay, what is possible to be carried on this vehicle or not? And usually the carriers will just say what they cannot do. So say, for example, they've been carrying iron ore. There's cross-contamination. There's not really much we can put in that truck other than iron So, for example, the world's longest trains go from Sishan to Walfus Bay, and it's a wonderful one-way trip. And then there's an empty train that goes on the way back. That you couldn't fill with no. beach sand, for argument's well, sake. I guess, I guess you could, but you also need to – there needs to be demand and supply yeah. of the goods that are moving. So even all the, con- all the containers that run up empty to Zambia, for example, to go fetch copper – we can't always put enough cargo in those containers because Zambia is not ordering enough finished goods from us to send up there. But so there's, there's stuff, always that imbalance. There is stuff, though, that you could yes. go. You could That's put how, um, cases of beer, for example, could mm, make it from, a point. From, from a brewery in Durban to Zambia. Why is it a sore point? So um, it took us nearly two years. That's, uh, I think, the one thing that a lot of entrepreneurs that want to become founders or potential entrepreneurs, they need to realize that things take 10 times longer when you deal with corporates. Because we're a business-to-business platform, I underestimated this courting period, right? One, you have to change their mindset. Two, you need to get through their bureaucracy. And then three, you actually just need to survive that until they, they're all on board. Between two of the biggest rail operators in Africa, somehow, by some grace, I happened to find myself in this right room at the right time betre- between the right parties. And basically, our algorithm identified an opportunity between copper moving south and beer moving north. And how we identified that is because we were monitoring um, volumes at the um, borders. And that wasn't in our portal, but we did our research to say, well, how are we going to actually onboard clients? We need to think differently. We need to actually go and force that data on to find matches. Because if they don't participate in the marketplace, we don't have their data, so we can't find matches. If you're not on the dating site, you're not going to find your perfect partner, right? Um, So we actually wanted to like influence it a bit. So we figured that out and I was like, you know what? The containers are perfect. Copper has to move in a lock container if it's by rail. 
I'm a big evangelist for rail. I believe it's underestimated. I think it's great for the environment. I think it's good for our economy. It has all these beautiful things that go with it. The infrastructure exists. Exists. It gets vehicles off the, the roads, road. which are dangerous and damage the roads and do all kinds of stuff. And trains are very good at crossing vast landscapes without incident. And they don't have the delays at the border like trucks do. So that's actually a quite an interesting uh, mm. fact that I also only learned later because they don't – a train will have a manifest and the manifest will be cleared within an hour because the train can't just stop and offload and unload without it being recorded on the manifest. manifest. So with as trucks, trucks can go off the road. Yeah. It can go into little side roads. You don't know what it's now loading onto that truck. So it causes a lot of delays at the border. So a train will clear within an hour. Um, and trucks in the Zimbabwe could stand there for days at Bartbridge. So I'm a big evangelist for rail. So I then approached AB and Bev, um, and I said, listen, I know you have a big innovation agenda. 3G Capital obviously bought yep. SA Breweries. So we know that they love cost-saving initiatives, innovation, and change. So I've got the solution for you. I want to move your beer from South Africa to Lusaka, which is about, I think they're sending about 66,000 trucks a year up there with sure. Budweiser. Um, and I want to take that and I want to potentially match it to a train. And those same containers are going to come back with copper. You might get a marginal cost saving. I can't promise the cost saving just yet. We need volumes to get that cost down because the rail operators need to recover their capital costs, sure. etc. And they're very inefficient, as we know. Um, and they're not very price dynamic, if I can say. Um, they're stuck in their ways. Yeah, they're stuck in their ways. So I said, just give me give me some time and give me some consideration. And it's going to be a difficult tripartite agreement because it's going to be between a cargo broker, a copper trader, and then a and you guys, and potentially then also the actual operators. Right? So it's actually more. And we maneuvered it and it took us two years. And then we got Grinod to agree to be the agent, the booking agent, the rail booking right. agent. Um, we got a commodity trader, which they work with, to put the copper in the same containers. The absolute saving would be actually from the container rentals that we're then sharing between the two. AB InBev were getting excited to make the green train, you know, the AB InBev green train. Um, I mean, it's been, I think, 15 years since they sent any um, beer by train. So it really is bringing back rail, like make rail great again. And then after all of that was agreed and sign-offs, we're going to do a pilot translate block the loading so it was all that work and that's some i mean i, I i'm really trying to build a good relationship with trans and i know they're going through so much change but don't kill innovation don't kill it all the hard work was done you had agreed mm. as well and then at the last it's minute astonishing. it makes all of us look stupid In the, it's astonishing though that we have you know state-owned entities that are incapable with playing catch-up or even being dragged along. They don't have to do the work. They're mm. just being dragged along through a process and could be made to look smart and relevant again. I mean, I was all about marketing them great again, you know. So it's been a bit of a love-hate relationship between myself and Transit, and hopefully they will get there one day and they'll see me as a partner or potential targets or whatever the case may be. But they have the ability to change rail in Africa because they own more than 80% of the railway track on the continent. 
Did you know that? It's a lost opportunity. It is an If they don't seize it. They don't have an online booking portal. They don't have any customer service. You try to get hold of Transit to move any freight. And then they wonder why. And then they're also not competitive on the pricing because they don't have dynamic price setting. So I said, well, through Railfox, which was a part of MT Trips, which only focuses on rail, is to say, like booking a flat. If there's high demand, the price of the seat goes up. If there's low demand, the price goes down. Correct. It's not rocket science what I'm doing, but let me bring it for you. You can have it. Just partner with me. You can have it. What? Still nothing. What is working? So what is working is we have over 110 transport companies on the portal now, trucking companies. It gives us access to over 6,000 trucks, which makes us the largest fleet in Africa by virtue of our partners. In the same way as Airbnb is the biggest seller of beds exactly. without owning a single bed, you're the biggest seller of trucks without owning well, a truck. Well, we, we try to be, right? Now it's to... I think the most important thing for us is to just survive the cycle of people adopting. So there's still a lot of resistance to technology in our platform. So you get this transporter signing up because it's a no-brainer to them. It's free to use. If there's a match, they pay me 3%. It's 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 only on success. So for them, it's an absolute no-brainer. They get a daily notification. It's set to their preferences. If there's a match or if they can bid on cargo. So for them, it's a no-brainer. For the cargo owners, it's still a bit more of a hand-holding. And that's kind of where we need to survive this, like, turn or dip. Because for them, it's this is how I've always done it. I trust my transporter. And I'm hoping that he optimizes his return trip. But you don't know. You don't know if he is or not. So there is still that influence that we need to do on the demand side. Because if there's no mm. demand, there's no match, right? And I think that's the most difficult thing about building a marketplace is building both demand and supply side and building the technology itself. So it's building three businesses at once. And we focus so much on the supply. Now I need to shift my focus to the demand side. And yeah, I'll just keep pushing, hey? Are you profitable? Close. Actually, I think this month I'm waiting for my financials. I think we are now finally profitable. So what we've done is we've been very smart. So obviously the first two years of a of a startup, you have a lot of sunk costs, marketing costs, new staff, staff that don't work out, technology. We had to rewrite our technology twice, which was a huge knock um, for our financials. But now finally I've restructured the company last year, December. We also sold a part of our business, which was an insurance business, which we built by accident. So that was a surprise. We sold that to a listed company. I would share that once it's signed. And that obviously also shifts us to gives us the capital that we need to continue to try and do what we do until we find the right partner to continue what we're doing in a more sustainable manner. I think last year when we restructured the company, it was a very big application of what I had learned at BCG. And it was hard to let people go because they actually, they killed your your profitability. You don't always need this big team. People yeah. think that team make the product. Yes, team do make the product. But sometimes the product needs to make the team. And I hired too quickly and I fired too slowly. So that was a lesson learned. And it wasn't firing. It was actually letting people go on a next journey for us to continue ours. I asked Raymond Ackerman once, what's been your biggest mistake in nearly 60 years of retail? And he said, letting people go too slowly. And I think the millennial culture is different. Um, millennial culture is less tolerant of dead wood. I mean, personally, I was more tolerant and they weren't dead wood because they all did add value. It was just we couldn't sustain that level of of expenses, given that we're a marketplace and we work on three to six percent basis points. So our margins are what we earn is very, very small. So you need to build yourself very lean and you're a technology business. I'm not there to replace Imperial or Grinrod. I'm there to enable them. 
right? Mm. So I can't build this big business with all these people. And then my shareholders are like, well, there's nothing left for us. You know, you have to build it lean, mean and keen. And that also helps you survive and extend your runway. At what point did you bring outside capital in? Because you bootstrapped with your own money um, and you've still got the sweat beads building on your brow as you think about it. How long did it take before you brought in capital and how did you choose your partners? How did they choose you? So um, I don't have a very normal story of how I raised venture capital. Firstly, I didn't want to raise venture capital. I had no idea how to raise venture capital, even though I was in um, private equity in a venture capital firm. Isn't it funny how you can be in a profession (laughs) and have absolutely no idea in practical terms how an industry works? Exactly. So I had no intention. I thought, no, you know what, I'm going to build it. This is what my budget is. This is my runway. I'm going to run it on my own. I might hire someone if I get tired. And because I'm consulting on the side, I have a consultancy called Seed Pitch that'll fund me, fund empty trips, my pet projects, because I'll need time, I'll need three years, and I'll budget for that. But then I underestimated the cost, I underestimated the timeline, I started to run out of money, I was physically fatigued from consulting and trying to do a startup. It got so much attention so soon, which I also didn't expect because it was this great idea and everyone's like, this is going to change you know, our roads and this and this. And then I was very excited about that, so I wanted to capitalize on that while I had that momentum. But then I realized, well, if I keep going at this rate, one, I'm going to be dead broke and my baby's going to starve. And so I'd better start looking. So I did a pitch deck. My first pitch deck was terrible. I probably have 58 versions of it by now. Um, But in any case, I then started to talk to different VCs and the main VCs in South Africa. And they all said, well, great concept. You've proven a prototype. Where are your revenues? And the revenues were there, but they were meager, 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 meager. Because we also ran a lot of pilots for free because we have to prove ourselves. We're the new kids on the block. We're women. We're tech. We're completely different. The industry is like, what is this? So it really took a lot of persuasion to get investors to say, well, okay, this is this is proper VC, right? This is early stage, high risk. I've shown my interest. I've invested everything I have. So I'm totally at risk. I need to make this work. And then eventually, I think I was at my complete wit's end and I was exhausted. And I said, no, my consulting firm was flying, was flying because now I'm thinking differently about things. I see things as a business owner perspective now. Now you've got real world experience. Yeah, so now executives actually do listen to me because I'm like, stop your nonsense. This is how we're going to do it. This is practical. This is not practical. Think about this. So that really helped my consulting side of the business. So I thought to myself, well, this default is working so well, but this is my baby. Like, MJ Trips is my baby. You know, I believe in this. I believe we need this. You can find a consultant in every block. Yes, I might be different, but I'm not that much greater than any other management consultant. So based on that, I said, okay, well, let me start looking. And I went, I spoke to a whole bunch of investors. And I got, no, 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 no. Great concept. Keep in touch. Keep in touch. And VC still SMS me and I just ignore them now. Eventually, one of the ladies that worked us, helped us with our marketing, Tracy Vance, she said, well, I just left Unicorn Capital Partners. They're listed on the JSE. And they actually bought Centula Mining. They're actually in the industrial space. And they're looking for some alternative investments. I know you're much. Just go chat to them. So I was like, you know what? It's on my way home. <laughs> it's so, a little bit like when <laughs> Naspers was busy packing its bags in yeah. China and Pony Ma arrived at the Naspers office one day and said, I've got this thing called Tencent. Give me $32 million. <laughs> and the rest is history. I wish I got $32 million. But, yeah. <laughs> but no, but it's it's that opportunity where had you on that day said, I'm tired. I couldn't be bothered. 
Yeah. And I was at that stage, right? Because you have founders fatigue that kicks in and you're tired and your team's tired and they're worried about their next salary and you're worried about paying their next salary. And I met with Jacques Bardenos and he was just absolutely one of the best people I could have met on that day. And he said, listen, do you have time to drive through to Pretoria and go see Tinas de Brain and uh, from Calibre Capital and Calibre is one of, uh, well, one of his mentors as well and investors in Unicorn. And I met with Tinas and Tinas didn't even look at my pitch deck. He said, tell me about your business. Um, how much have you invested? Why do you believe in this? Then he threw a few questions at me of about tax structuring offshore because I did a master's in corporate finance in Germany focusing on tax. So I gave him like what I thought about tax structuring. And I think he just liked me. He thought I was capable. And he said, how much did you invest? And I said, well, just over two million. And he's like, how much are you looking for? And I said, just six million. And he said, I'll give you three million. And he said, how much did you want to get give for the six million? I said, 10%. And he said, I'll give you three million for 20%. So I was like, this is like Dragon's Den real world. Yeah. And then I was like, are you serious? And he's like, yes, let's start the due diligence. And I was like, oh, here we go. Like, how can you do diligence, a company that's seven months old? Like, we have, no, I don't have any closet, funny things in my closet. We're too small. We have no loans. No one will give a startup a loan. Like, I can't even get a personal loan anymore because I'm not an entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> you don't have a payslip. I yes. don't have a payslip. I don't get paid. Um and it was a five-day DD with Unicorn Capital's CFO, and we went through everything, and that was it. And I was like, this is it, guys. Now we can redo the technology, fix the things that we did wrong. We can get the right team. I spent a lot. I wasted a lot. And I honestly said that, and I've always said that to them, and I've apologized. And Tina's now still backs me, so I'm helping him look at new investments to take global or grow their manufacturing capacity. Is the dream still intact that you can reduce substantially the number of empty yes. trucks on the road, the number of empty trains going in one direction, possibly even empty planes? Without a doubt, globally, it's a $7 trillion industry. And it's uh, it's been said, not only in South Africa, with all our inefficiencies, globally, it's a 30 to 40% issue on capacity mismatch. So even though I focus first in South Africa and then hopefully Africa and then globally, it's a problem that we need to fix. The fact that we have more catastrophic environmental incidents over the last five years than we've ever seen before, we need to take drastic change. And not all of us are going to recycle and not all of us are going to make drastic changes. But if we simply just fix the wastage in this one industry, we could actually just reduce carbon emissions by nearly 5%. This is one industry. You could it's reduce carbon emissions, thing. you could save money, and you could create a sustainable business. That's three things. That's the triple bottom line impact, right? Benji Kutsia is the founder and chief executive of Empty Trips. R&B, solutionist thinking. For more on this series, visit 702.co.za.